Well, today we start our new series uh, called Undivided Race, Grace and Galatians, and it is so good to be with you. And this week is going to be like an introduction to the series, really, which is effectively why are we doing it? What are we, how are we going to approach it? And why is it rooted in Galatians? And so I want to get the series off to a, a, hopefully a solid start by just showing us, re really clearing a bit of the ground so that as we get into Paul's letter to the Galatians, we can understand how we're framing and how it sits within the conversation we're having about race as a church. And the word grace in our subtitle is really important. We're calling it race, grace, and Galatians because we don't just want to talk about race, we want to talk about the grace of God which makes us one and that covers over our shortcomings. And that's going to be really important, I think, for us as a, as a church as we explore these issues together and on Sundays, in groups, in personal conversations, actually being able to come before God before whom we all fall short and say, yeah, Lord, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I need you to cover me. And actually for us to have a heart like that to each other as well, to cover each other's shortcomings. Or at the very least, you're going to, going to need to cover mine because I will make mistakes. I will get some things wrong here. I will talk in ways that I'm going to do my best. But I think there will be areas where, as, even as preachers or pastors, where we articulate things and we think, oh, that's not quite the best way of saying it for this person. And we will get some things wrong. That's happened to me multiple times since being at King's. And I have had the enormous privilege of having a bunch of people in the church who love me and who love the church come and talk to me and say, that wasn't the best way of doing that. This would, it would have been much better if you'd said this. I'm like, okay, right. And then they just say, but we love you and we're for you. We know you're, that's not your heart, but please don't do that again. And that, that kind of grace as a community is what I think we'll need moving in. And so as we turn to the word of God, just to have that heart really for each other and for what God's doing here. Just one example we talked about last week. We we're filming some videos for groups. I'm just seeing an excerpt of, of the video that Steve, Steve did, but we did, a bunch of us were involved. And we had this conversation before we started filming about language. Like, what language are we going to use? Are we going to say B-A-M-E? Uh, or are we going to say people of color? Are we going to say black and brown? Are we going to say European, African, Asian heritage? Almost all of the terms we might use have got some drawbacks somewhere. And they've all got some strengths as well. And in the end, we said, I think we're just going to have to use different of those terms according to who's speaking and trust that as the people of God together, we'll, we'll understand what's meant and what's intended, but there's no intent to, to offend and just to use the terms that feel natural, but obviously within, within reason. Because although we don't want to be walking on eggshells, we also don't want to be thoughtless either. We want to learn and be sensitive to one another. So but without being paranoid. So that's the hope that the spirit we're doing this series in will, will be conducted in, really. And I'll do my best, and we're going to have to root for each other and cover each other's shortcomings with the grace of God, who covers all of it. And in the end, all of us have fallen short of what he wants for our lives, and, so, and yet he loves us abundantly and has covered all our sins. And it's in that spirit we're going to read the word of God together and consider grace and Galatians. And so I want to start by making a statement for you to think about, and then we're going to read from Acts chapter 17. And the statement I want you to think about is this. Race does not really exist, but racism does, and the church has a vital role in responding to it. Race doesn't really exist, but racism does, and the church has a vital role in responding to it. I want you to just maybe think about that, and we're now going to read Acts chapter 17, and beginning at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, 
this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to humankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of God. From a biblical perspective, race doesn't really exist. There's one race, humanity, in God. That's what, that's what God has made. God created all human beings in his own image, and he endowed all of us with the same levels of reason, emotion, dignity, spirituality, you name it. Human beings are one in that sense. We are undivided, hence the name. Race, the categorization of human beings uh, that we have today, that we talk about people as being from different races, is a much more modern invention. It didn't exist in that form in the ancient world at all. In fact, the concept didn't really develop anywhere until the early modern period when Europeans started categorizing people groups and giving them different origin stories and saying, well, these people come from this and these people come from that, but we come from this and that's why we're great. That, that, that's the vibe. And, and so race like that didn't exist in the ancient world. Paul is not speaking in a world where people think in terms of different races. The idea of biologically distinct groups of people who are distinct from one another and have different origin stories developed from separate foundations. That idea would have made no sense at all to Jesus or Paul or Moses or David or anyone in scripture. And actually in this passage, in this message, which is you'll notice is not from Galatians. This is a, one of Paul's sermons, but it states it really nicely. Paul's preaching in Athens to these very philosophically minded, educated folk in the ancient world. And he gives them five reasons why ultimately, whether you're a Greek in Athens or a Jew from Tarsus or wherever you're from, you are all ultimately one and all accountable before the same God and all need to believe in the same savior who is Jesus. And he gives them five reasons why that's true. Five reasons why the human race effectively is undivided. First, he says, you have a common creator. Verses 24 to 25. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, gives to all humanity life and breath and everything. Right? There's one creator and one people. It's not like oh, that one God over there for this people, their God over there with those people. No, there's one God, one humanity. Secondly, he says, you have a common origin. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. So all human beings have one origin story. And the Bible tells us that story in Genesis, and not just in Genesis 1 and 2, but also 6 to 9 and the scattering out after the flood. And the, the biblical worldview involves human beings having a common ancestry, common origin, which means we are 
undivided. We're one. We're not divided into different races. Third thing he points to, verse 27, we have a common purpose. Being then, sorry, that they should, the, the reason for human beings is that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. All human beings have been designed for fellowship with God. It's not like the Jewish people did and those people over there didn't. It's not like white people do and black people don't or brown people do. No. Well, it's, it's not that. It's that all human beings have been created that we might find God. And that's why we're here. And we all equally bear God's image. The fourth reason, verse 29, Paul says we have a common problem. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, all human beings are riddled with idolatry. It's, again, in the sort of early modern period, you start discovering civilizations saying, those people worship idols. You think, you worship idols as well. You worship idols like money, sex, and power. You might not worship a literal god of stone anymore. You might well have a god made of metal and yet about this size sitting in the corner of your sitting room, but you're still worshiping an idol in some form, and that's a common problem. All human beings have it. And then finally, you're united because you all need a common gospel, Paul says, verse 30 and 31. Now, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's a common gospel, the risen Jesus to liberate us from idolatry. And he's going to come as judge and as savior. And we need to turn to him and believe. And so in this sort of sermon, which isn't really, it's not really about race, because as I said, race didn't exist in Paul's world, but Paul is giving us at least five reasons why the human race is actually one undivided race rather than lots of subdivided ones in which they, they should, they've sort of got these essential characteristics and they're at war with each other. And actually the rest of scripture bears out that view of humanity as well. So it's kind of fun to read scripture with this in mind, but you read Joseph, right? One of the one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, those of us who, may, we may not know the Bible that well, but we may know, know about, we may well know G Joseph and his technicolor dream coat and his feeding Egypt and becoming prime minister of, of Egypt and so on. But he marries an Egyptian woman whose name is Asenath. And his, their two kids are, if you like, in our terms, you might say, well, they've got a Jewish dad and an African mum. And so Ephraim and Manasseh, two of the tribes of Israel, the half tribes of Israel are, have got mixed race parentage. And we think, oh yeah, that, but there doesn't seem to be, no one's going, oh gosh, you can't do that, Joseph. It's just, no, this is just how it was. Moses marries a Cushite woman. Cush is modern day Sudan, right? So Moses, and that's, again, you just sort of see that there's no sort of, it's not like a barrier between peoples that means that that's a completely unthinkable thing to do. The Queen of Sheba from distant Arabia, corners of Arabia, she comes and visits Solomon. The first worshipers of Jesus are wise men from the East. Why often central to Eastern or Southern Asia? We're not entirely sure where. The first individual who has a conversion story described in scripture is from Ethiopia. The first person to believe in Jesus and get baptized whose, whose personal story is told. And so you think this is, there isn't this sort of idea that no, 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 there's, the, there's a race here that knows God and then these others. There's basically the Jewish people who have God's revelation to them. And then you have loads and loads of people from other peoples who join the people of God. And there's no sense that the fact that you look like this or have skin color like that or hair like that or whatever it might be, it precludes you from joining those people. And so the idea that all these people belong to different races, let alone that some of the races are biologically superior to others, is utterly unbiblical. And of course, it's done 
untold damage in the world that we live in over the last 500 years. In that sense, biblically speaking, there's no such thing as race. So race in the modern European sense of biologically distinct groups of humanity who have distinct physiological, psychological, intellectual capabilities, all the other terrible things people did and said, that's not real. So you might say, well, why are we talking about it then? If it's not real, why talk about it? And the answer, I think, is because racism is real. And sometimes you have to talk about fictional categories in order to expose them and unveil the damage that they have done to the people in our community and people in the world generally, both in the past and in the present. So even if race isn't real, the fact that people have believed it is has caused a lot of damage and therefore we have to unpick some of that in order to be able to serve and love one another in God. So what I want to do is just, and it's going to sound like a weird idea, just want to give a very brief history of racism, at least as I understand it. And just, this might help you get what I'm coming from in saying I think racism is very real, even though I don't think race is. Human beings have always operated with in-groups and out-groups, right, of some form. We've got this land and this language and religion and these customs and we eat these foods and those people over there have different land, language and customs and they eat those foods. People have always done that. People still do it. You see it on social media. You see it in the school cafeteria. You see it in tribes in the jungle. You see it wherever you go. This is something that human beings do. And we protect each other against them. That's quite basic to humans. And that runs pretty deep in human beings. And for most of our history, as a, as a species, if you like, the arrival of people who look or sound different from us could well mean trouble. So there's, you, you kind of see where it comes from way back when. You think, yeah, because that might mean rivalry or competition for power or resources or plunder or war. It could mean lots of things. And so that's quite deep in a lot of people. Even when we don't want it to be there, there is some of it in probably all of us to some degree. But that tribalism, that sense of, oh no, this is our group, that's your group, wasn't racialized. And what I mean by that is it wasn't, until recently, it wasn't grounded in like essential features or characteristics of a people or bogus science as it has been in the last 500 years. So in the ancient world, a barbarian could learn Greek and be accepted as a Greek. A Moabite like Ruth could join Israel. She could say, I'm going to follow your God. Your God will be my God. And she joins Israel and everyone goes, wonderful. And now she's David's grandmother, great-grandmother. A Jew like Esther could marry the Persian king and rescue the Jewish people. Paul could be a Jew and an Asian and a Greek speaker and a Roman citizen all at once. Do you see, the world isn't racialized like, like our world now is as a result of the story I'm telling, really, it, what happened, you, you'd have people who would say, we believe our group better than your group, but they didn't do it on the grounds of race. They didn't divide the world that way. But 500 years ago, or thereabouts, Europeans went on long voyages and began encountering people who were very different from them, especially in, in the Americas. That's often where it started. And so they began speculating on more essential differences. And they started saying, hmm, these people are very different from us. That must mean, I mean, they've, they haven't developed some of the technologies we've developed. They must be inferior to us. And then they started trying to make sense of that and came up with this thing that we effectively, that we now, has evolved into what we now call racism. And the Europeans rocked up and they said, well, we've got guns and ships and books and horses and the Native Americans, the Aztecs, the Incas, they don't. And so there must be something superior about our people. Now, of course, that's... And then they extend that to 
Africans and Australians and all over the place. Now, of course, that's completely untrue. The reason why Europeans had those advantages is because they had all kinds of geography advantages that the Americans did not have. They had in Eurasia wheat and barley and cows and sheep and horses and pigs and all sorts of other things that meant, of course, cities were going to develop quicker. And of course, people would have time to develop writing and technology. And then when they did arrive in the New World, the Native Americans quickly went, oh, horses, these are very handy, and then got better at the Europeans at using horses. So this is not about superiority at all, but that theory set in and people began thinking, this is how we're just, we're better. Our, super, our people are superior. And that arrogance led Europeans to divide the world into races, which the early version really was, you got red, yellow, white, black. If you like, whites in the north, blacks in the south, reds in the Americas and the west, yellow in the east. That's how they did it. And they could then use that to develop a hierarchy of races with white people at the top. And that was obviously for them, became useful terrible but useful as a means of justifying taking people's land or possessions or very people, bodies, and taking them to go and work for them as slaves. And that's, that's effectively how the idea evolved and got traction. That's not, that's a biblically abhorrent, God hates it, but that's where it comes from. And the terrible thing is that the more Europeans learn about biology and genetics, the more elaborate that racism became. Instead of saying, gosh, this is nonsense, they instead say, oh, yes, well, actually, this just shows that intelligence is related to this, or we are destined to rule because of that. And a whole system gets built out of bogus science and sometimes just sort of messed up theology and all kinds of other things. And it becomes a rationale, not just for slavery, but for colonialism and Europe, for Jim Crow in America, for apartheid in South Africa, and who knows what else. And the legacy of all of that Friends, it's still with us. I know many of you will say, of course it is. We know that. We live it all the time. Others are going, oh, really? But, but that, is, that legacy of that is still with us. And we're both directly in the stories that we will no doubt share in groups. And I've, I'm part of a group already at our, with our staff team. We're just hearing some of the stories thinking, this is so present still. But it's also present indirectly in our country. And that is sometimes harder to see for some of us, particularly people who look like me, but just still in disparities in the UK when it comes to income or home ownership or employment or policing or education or healthcare or criminal justice and so many other areas. And so even though race isn't real, racism is. And it, and it has shaped our world profoundly and horribly in the last 500 years. And to be able to deal with it and respond to it, we have to see it and then by the grace of God to unpick it and challenge it. So I began by saying three things. Firstly, race doesn't exist. Secondly, racism does. And thirdly, the church has a vital role in responding to it. And that's where I want to come now, really, and just help hopefully connect it to the series that we're starting today. Because the sharp-eyed among you will have noticed a problem. Okay, so race doesn't exist in the Bible. And racism, in that sense, didn't exist in the Bible. But you want to teach from the Bible to address the subject of racism. How are you going to do that? It's not in there. Right? You might have thought that and got, and if you didn't think it before, you're probably thinking it now. And sometimes people will make that point actually in completely opposite ways. Because there are some people who say, the Bible doesn't talk about race, so we shouldn't either. We should focus on preaching the gospel. We shouldn't get into divisive political agendas like that. And on the other side, people say, the Bible doesn't talk about race, but we have to because it's such a big issue. So instead of using the Bible, we need to use secular, non-biblical categories to talk about it instead. And they might include 
categories like diversity, inclusion, privilege, oppression, intersectionality, white supremacy, lots of terms like that, all of which actually can be useful in the right times, but they're not, but that's not the same way that the Bible tends to talk about the issues. And so what you have is people who from both sides might say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about race. Now, one book that we're recommending for this series, George Yancey's Beyond Racial Division, it's, uh, you've probably already heard it mentioned. This does a superb job, I think, of explaining why although both of those paths are partly right and have got some important truth to them, the way of Jesus requires a third approach, which involves joining the dots and connecting and having dialogue between the two. But both of those groups at their ex extreme certainly would say, using the Bible to preach against race, preach on race or against racism is a bad idea. But the thing is, I think scripture does address racism over and over and over again at its very roots, because at the heart of racism is ethnic boasting, which manifests itself through ethnic pride and superiority and arrogance on the one hand, and ethnic hatred, injustice and violence on the other hand. And there's a lot of the Bible, and I would say a whole book of the Bible, specifically aimed at bringing down ethnic boasting and saying that thing that makes you feel like your people are better than their people and their people need to become like you to be accepted into your people, that's got to come down. And the cross of Christ is fundamentally opposed to it and is going to destroy it if you just let the gospel do its work in your hearts. And you need to see how, if you are to believe in the cross of Christ, you cannot possibly boast in fleshly things like your ethnic pride and heritage and instead bring down those sources of pride and arrogance and hatred and animosity and submit them to the Lordship of Christ. And that book, the book that does those things, is Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's an incredibly powerful letter that punches on the nose the thing that is at the root of racism. And at the heart of Galatians, what we're going to see as we go through this letter is the conviction that ethnic boasting, whether it's in circumcision or table fellowship, you know, who eats with whom, or feasts and festivals, but ethnic boasting contradicts the grace of God in Christ. Right? You cannot really believe the grace of God in Christ and still set yourself up as superior to somebody else on grounds of your ethnicity or your heritage. Because if you do, you show that you don't really believe in grace. Because that's not the basis on which God accepted you at all. So if someone refuses to eat with someone from another ethnic group, as happens in Galatians 2, they are denying justification by faith. And we'll see that in a few weeks' time. It's like a complete rewriting of the gospel. If you say, no, no, we can't eat with you because of your ethnicity, you're saying, I don't even believe the gospel of justification by faith. If people put their confidence in the flesh, the physical signs of belonging to a particular group, as happens in Galatians 3, they're undermining the work of Christ in whom Jew and Gentile are one and united in baptism. If a church insists that these people have to take on the external trappings of these people in order to be fully accepted into the community, which happens in Galatians 5, they are falling away from grace. So if you've ever heard the term, oh, they've fallen from grace, this is where it comes from, this letter. And what it means is not, oh, they've just become bad people. What it means is they have demonstrated by their refusal to accept people on the same terms as them that they don't believe in the grace of God. And Paul concludes his letter by saying, may I never boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision, Jewishness, nor uncircumcision, Gentileness, means anything 
What counts is new creation. And so that's where we're going. And we're going to explore this letter to see how those connections are made and to see how they apply to the issue of race in our culture. And those of you who've been around at Kings a while now will know that we often, I like to get my Russian dolls out, and we often engage with scripture at personal corporate and cosmic levels. There's this version that's for me, there's a version that's for us, and there's a version that's for the world. And there are ways, as we'll see in this series, in which we're called to engage with the issue of race as individuals, as many of us already do on a daily basis in our work, in our homes, and our families, in personal activism. There are other things that we're called to do corporately as a community, to put the oneness that we have in Christ on display in our public gatherings and our corporate worship and our table fellowship and preaching, prayer, leadership, mission, and so on. And there is a cosmic dimension as well that we're no longer, Paul says, enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world that would divide us like that, but as we confront the principalities and powers of racial injustice, we show that we in Christ have become undivided. And we witness to the fact that God is making not just a new person and a new community, but a whole new world in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we're doing it in this, ser- doing this series. And that's why we're basing it in Galatians. May God use this book, this series, this time that we have together to bring closer unity, greater justice and more reliance upon his spirit and a deeper experience of his grace. And may he make us undivided. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your wisdom and we need your power. Lord, we need your word to be clear to us. We need love to characterize us. We need your spirit to equip and empower and mobilize us. Lord, would you unite us? Would you help us expose what has, the works of darkness have done in our nation and the nations of the world in the last few centuries and, and even the way they continue to function? Would you help us confront them and would you help us put on display something better and different in which we stand before you on the basis of the grace of God in Christ, not on the basis of any worldly standard of boasting? Please, Lord, would you make us undivided? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.